0: Hey guys, before the interview with C.R. Wiley today, I want to remind you about a few things and also make an announcement about something we're pretty excited about around our home. First, I want to remind you of the membership. If you would, just for $5 a month, subscribe to be a member of the Shepherd's Crook. That's going to get you two things. First, it's going to get you a newsletter that's going to actually come to your mailbox, a physical newsletter every month. And then at the end of the year, you're going to get a thumb drive of all the content, both audio and video, because I want to give you ownership over this content. And then if something never happens to the internet or something crazy that happens, I still have my contact list. I can continue to produce material and still get it to you in that way. And then beyond that, you're going to get access to previous content that's unreleased, cohorts and the rites of passage series as it gets completed. So reach out to me if you want to be in the membership. Also, we just launched the Sons and Slaves podcast. This previously was the Sparksman podcast that I was doing with my sons, but we've repackaged it and we're putting that out there. You can actually find it in its own show on iTunes, or any other podcast platform. We have the introduction and the first episode that's already posted. It's going to be a lot of fun as we work through raising sons into men, and we're just going to have great conversations and take you guys along the way with us. And then finally, shout out to New Christendom Press. Today's conversation with Chris Wiley is about his book on risk that's going to be published through New Christendom. So Eric Kahn, Brian Silvey, and Dan Burkholder, and everybody else out there in Ogden, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. This is a great conversation with C.R. Wiley, and I can't wait to read the book once it's out. Okay, I think that's it. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook podcast, The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor. I come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Shepherd's Crook. I hope you guys are all having a great day today. I am excited to talk to a reoccurring guest now. I've actually had him on. I think this is the second or third time, so I think you'll be familiar with him talking with Chris Wiley again today. Chris, how's it going?
1: Great, Jerry. Good to be with
0: you. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's help. And then we're going to hear about your book, uh, the new book that you have that, you work, that you've been uh, been working on, on risk. But let's first start with prayer. Okay. Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for a faithful brother and a man that I've learned from and so many have learned from. Thank you for all the men that have been inspired to get productive property, to walk with gravitas, all the things that He's been talking about for years, and you've used him so many life, Just thinking through that kind of thing and those, those sorts of things, and I know that this category of risk and uh, talking about it can be uh, a difficult thing because we all want to be wise, we all want to be careful and, and take calculated risks, and, and wh- how much is a too much of a risk and and that sort of thing. And so, just give us wisdom through this conversation, and, and as he continues to write the book, I pray that you would give him wisdom to finish that project. And uh, thank you for this time. I ask for blessing upon it, In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, if you would, I'd love to hear a quick update. You, I know you're now living and, and moved cross-country, and now you're there full-time. So how's the new work going? And I think uh, Nick Storm, I believe, is in your congregation. Uh, yeah, he's right. a, a gab buddy, but how are things going in the new place?
1: Yeah, Nick's great, uh, and his family's great. Yeah, the church is growing. Um, we're looking to uh, add staff now. Um, we uh, almost ran out of communion bread Sunday. So it's well, kind of a good problem, <laughs> yeah. but it's at a point where I, I really don't know everybody anymore. And, uh, it's kind of hard to, 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 when you have like 10 to 20 visitors every week. So that's kind of where we're at.
0: Yeah. Great problems to have. I mean, that's phenomenal. What town is it?
1: Well, I live in battleground, uh, but the church meets in Vancouver. Uh, but, uh, we use rented space and, uh, we're in the process of developing a plan for another place to to meet another we're going to build a new facility at some point but anyway it'll probably be up here in battleground when it's all kind of settled
0: okay gotcha all right so i heard some rumors about this new work that you're going to be putting together with new christendom press and to work on risk and i've got some friends and was talking to brian about it. And he seemed pretty excited about what you've got and what you're putting together. And so I just love to hear about the work and what you've been thinking. And I know you've been thinking about it for years, but just bring us up to speed on this new work, the new book that's coming out. Just kind of give us an overview of of what it's going to be about.
1: Yeah. Well, essentially uh, the quest for a risk-free life is the riskiest kind of life you can lead. And if you understand that, then you just accept the fact that risk is part of life, then the question is, is what sort of risks are the right risks to take? Um, so that that's more or less the framework for my understanding. I mean, years ago, my, my father-in-law, who's no longer with us, he went to be with the Lord. He uh, was laid off after about 30 years working for United technologies. And he was actually one of their more talented engineers, uh, he had been, you know, a child of the '50s and so forth, and had bought into the safe, secure job with benefits mantra. And mm-hmm. he was one of the people who learned in the early '90s that that rule uh, was uh, not going to be honored anymore, or that mm-hmm. promise wasn't going to be honored. And so he was he was downsized, and hired back at a lower uh, as a consultant without benefits at a lower price, you know, that kind of thing. So
0: yeah,
1: it really. It really shook him um and a lot of guys experienced that he wasn't the only one but w- what had helped to create is a i think a, a reality check for a lot of people about uh the way the world works so like mm-hmm. when you think about uh, a business who's the last guy to get fired the owner <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's the last guy to go right now you're talking about a corporation then you're talking about maybe you know something different you know but if you're talking about just say uh something that is uh smaller in scale and is privately held then you know he's going to be the last to go so uh essentially if once you've ex- once you kind of uh, really let that sink in uh, it affects the way you look at the world and uh-huh. then the questions that start to follow is well what next so um anyway that's that's the nature of the of the project it's just kind of helping guys think about that and and encouraging them to to take the kind of risks that'll make it possible for them to own productive property.
0: Yeah. Phenomenal. You seem to be one of the kind of the few guys, there's this growing divide has been for a while now, and I'm sure you're familiar with it of the younger guys and the older guys about investments and about revenue streams and the difference between getting a factory job, getting your pension, and then the world we find ourselves in today where you, you can't hardly find anything when you're 22 years old to go jump on board and and have a career job and uh so you saw that pretty early on what what do you think differentiates you with the mainstream thought from guys that are generally your age you know that may be on the the younger age of the baby boomers but still have this very much this mentality what, what I mean was it thrust upon you that you had to change and adapt or why, why do you think there's still so many people ingrained in that older way of thinking that are counseling so many younger guys with counsel from 40 years ago? That's just not that effective today.
1: Well, I think partly, uh, it's, the, it's the fact that I, um, am the product of a broken home, um, that I think contributed to it. So a lot of, a lot of baby boomers grew up in a fairly stable world. Um, Maybe you could say I was an early Gen Xer, you know, I, So I, I guess I'm on the on the on the border of those two groups, borderline of those two groups. And when I was a kid, um, every, it was kind of the uh, it was the '60s, early '70s. Everybody was looking for themselves, and the the self was always in California, very far away from your responsibilities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so parents were parents were just out to lunch. We didn't have helicopter parents in those days. You were pretty much on your own. So I was on my own pretty early and I learned to distrust institutional authority pretty early. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about just, um, you know, parental authority. I'm talking about just in, in general, uh, institutions that we're told we should trust. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't trust school teachers. I didn't trust psychologists. I didn't trust any of those people. And my, my, my distrust served me well, <laughs> you know? So I, you know, I, in the sense that, um, I felt it incumbent upon myself to take uh, matters in my own hands as much as I could. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't disrespectful. I wasn't rebellious. Uh, You know, I don't want people to kind of take it to, you know, in those directions when they're thinking, but I just, I just knew I couldn't depend on a lot of these folks. Now, when I became a believer um, I uh, was given the grace to trust in God. So Mm -hmm. it's not as though I, I'm just, a person who can't trust people uh, or god or anything like that it's just but i but it particularly institutional authority mm-hmm. um you know the idea that i could just kind of hand my life over to large and personal institutions just uh, seemed insane to me mm-hmm. over, over the know. years so because of that um you know i've taken matters into my own hands as as best i can and, and i've worked i've tried to work with large institutions when it's been uh, in my interest to do so
0: mm-hmm. okay it's interesting because a lot of the gen xers who hated institutional power and structure and warred against it it's the weirdest thing to watch a majority of them now be on board with the institutional power it's like green you know green day was talking about sticking it to the man and now they're you know they're they're like farm, you know like pharma's their sponsor or something it's just the the weirdest thing uh, well they're frauds Yeah. Right. (laughs) Come on. We need some, we need some good old rebels to come back, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Well, that's, that's it. You know, I remember the hippies from the day, the hippies, we actually owe some, I think, uh, things to to those folks. One is, uh, they really believed now they had a kind of Rousseauian sort of way of thinking about the natural world, but they, they were much more into sort of natural sort of get back to nature stuff Mm-hmm. then all the weird pharmacolo- pharmacological or whatever you want to call it stuff today where people are just being pumped full of hormones to try to be what they're not and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So uh, they believed in men and women, but they also believed uh, in small scale stuff. So they were into like, they were like the pioneers of the homeschooling uh, right. movement. And it was uh, Christians who picked it up, you know, sort of after they had done a lot of the initial, you know, heavy lifting, uh, hmm. particularly when it came to the legal side of it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we think about the word risk immediately. I think most people go to financial risk. I mean, that's what, what they're thinking. It's, it's most likely we're talking about finances and investments. And how do you know it's a measurable risk and a good risk? But, but I'm assuming there's it's broader than just that. I mean, you just did move cross country. That involves some risk. So, as you're thinking through that word and then the categories that may flow underneath that. What were you thinking here? let i mean, we'll get back to the financial side here in a little bit. But was there—is there more categories that you're thinking about, or is that primarily uh, primarily what your your target was to talk about financial risk? Well,
1: I'll definitely be kind of putting that front and center. But you're right; it's it's broader. I think it it can come as a surprise that that sometimes uh, virtues in one uh, sort of sphere of life don't seem to carry over to another. So, for example, you know, I've known guys who are physically uh, very competent uh, and and are able to take risks when it comes to personal sort of physical safety, but are extremely risk averse in other parts of life. Hmm. You know, uh, when it comes to relationships or when it comes to to finances, or and it can work the other way as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, there are there are a range of risks. I think that which which you need in order to manage risk well is self-control and, um, a, a sense of personal mastery. And when, when yeah. you have that and you can kind of manage, um, your fears, um, you're able to, um, you know, exercise discretion and, and be prudent, but at the same time, uh, take the steps that you need to take to take advantage of your opportunities. So mm-hmm. and it, it's true for like, um, uh, personal relationships. So for example, a lot of guys, uh, are, you know, interested in a relationship with a woman. They want to, they want to, you know, you know, establish a household someday. And, but, um, you know, one of the things you have to overcome is your fear of rejection. Uh, what if that's going to happen? And a lot of guys, uh, just kind of put things off. Uh, they employ strategies that just don't work like the nice guy strategy. You know, um, we've heard a lot of great, um, input on that subject. It, girls aren't interested, nice guys. <laughs> that kind of stuff. So uh what often needs to happen is is you have to be up to the the um uh, to the to the challenge of actually approaching a girl that you that you find attractive and uh able to deal with the possibility or maybe the even the the experience of being rejected and then just get up and do it again with some other girl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So as risk is just part of life, and and you're right, it you depending on where you are, um, yeah, and what stage of life you're in, and in what sphere of life you're talking about, uh, yeah. you know you're gonna you're gonna deal with different kinds of risk.
0: Okay, well, just a personal question. I've got a lot of equity uh, in our home, and just been very blessed with uh, the way we've landed where we've landed. We've got to build a few years ago, and that happened by way of family money and generational wealth that was passed on. And so we were able to build, build our home. And I was talking to a buddy of mine he's like, bro, I would go out and I would buy like three cheap houses in our area in Southern Illinois. You can buy homes. You can pick up a home for $50,000 that's livable right now. And it's like, I just go buy three homes and do a little bit of work to them and Airbnb the heck out of them, you know, just Mm -hmm. make some money. And we are, um, I've almost paid it off and mm-hmm. it's, I do want to pay it off. And then I've got some plans after that. And on the side, actually, right. When we get done talking here, I've got a guy that's going to be coming to rent one of our campers. So we, we rent out campers and right. it's not taken off. It's just slow. It's just our second year doing it, but we just have two campers and we have one that we use for our family. And uh, so the, the the internal wrestle, Chris, is that the, the whole idea that the borrower is the slave to the lender and the the Proverbs warnings about that. and I know there's a case to be made, and people have made a lot of money in real estate by buying a house improvement, improving it, taking out that money, and going and getting the next one. And they've I mean, there's a difference between, you know, good debt and bad debt. I get all that. And then this Romans thirteen eight is just stuck in my head, you know, of oh, no man, anything. So, what can of like, how have you worked through that? Because I, I mean, I'm assuming as you're thinking through all that and, and been doing this for years that you've worked through that. So just, just as some personal counsel, um, what, you know, what is the, the the theological case for, you know, not being the slave to the lender and yet bringing on debt to make money?
1: Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things to note. One is that uh, different stages of life, uh, you know, you uh, know, kind of the prudent course of action might be different. So like when I was young and I had nothing, <laughs> you know, I wasn't in the spot that you have you're in right now where you have a, some equity. I had maybe $5,000 in the bank. And, uh, you know, I, I, I took, uh, uh, you know, I got a mortgage and bought my first two family and lived in one of the units. So it was a very prudent move at that point because I was already, it was, it was either that or rent,
0: mm-hmm. you know? Right. So
1: that was the basic choice. Um, now I'm in a different place. I own properties free and clear. And, but I'm 60 years old. So I'm not like looking to like leverage those anymore. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, th- I, those are mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, gotcha. I'm not
1: going to do that anymore. But there are other properties that I, I am leveraged. Now, one of the ways to think about it is um, banks. And this is where I think maybe, you know, the situation on the ground today is is dramatically different than the situation that is described in scripture. banks, borrow in effect from uh, the Federal Reserve. Okay. In other words, they use uh, their own kind of leverage. So their deposits make it uh, possible for them to acquire the funds that they in turn lend to others. And then they have to pay back the Federal Reserve at a particular interest rate. Then they have their markup. So mm-hmm. that's why, you know, the Fed, you know, overnight rate uh, affects our credit but it's not direct it's it's the, the intermediary mm-hmm. now we can argue about whether or not that's a good thing whether we should have a Federal Reserve you know whether it you know fractional banking is 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 moral <laughs> the situation on the ground is what it is
0: <laughs> right this yes. is, gotcha this is
1: the situation we find ourselves in so and you know, unless we want to create an entirely separate economic sort of system. That's fine. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm up for that conversation. This is the way things work for businesses, for, you know, home buyers, et cetera, unless you uh, are just working with what's known as, you know, hard money, Mm -hmm. which is money that's not, um, you know, you know, you know, uh, created out of thin air by the fractional banking system. Um, and you're not, you know, mortgaging away your futures. But when you think about it in the way I just described, when when you're dealing with a bank, so let's say you're uh, looking to buy commercial real estate. Well, your bank is actually your business partner. They're taking hmm. risk too. So okay. it's not as though they're um, just in a position of, of strength and you serve them.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: You know, so now in your agreement with them, um, if you can't keep your part of the agreement they have certain rights and they can take over the property but right. believe me they don't want to do that the last thing a bank wants is is a is real estate they 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 make their money on lending not on managing mm-hmm. and uh usually when when real estate falls into their hands they're trying to liquidate it take it up you know take a loss cut their losses that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, because they're just not competent um, to handle that stuff so i think that's a different way to think about it that adds a kind of new kind of a wrinkle that maybe, um, you know, you wouldn't think of uh, just use, you know, sort of appealing to scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. So in your life, as you assess back over the years, have you been in multiple situations then where you've made a decision and thought, okay, I could lose my shirt on this or oh, yeah. <laughs> it could go really well. So is that, is that what you're just comfortable with? I mean, have you been there, I mean, five times, 10 times, or has that just been a way of living, where? You're just comfortable. It's almost like you're bet, you know, not in a weird way, but you're just betting on yourself knowing, okay, I can do this work and I'm trusting that God's going to come through here. Um, and then, you know, how how do you differentiate that between that and uh, and something that's foolish, you know? I mean, because there's got to be a line here where I could lose my shirt, but it's still not foolish.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, the, the old adage, you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. You know, so if you have an eye for value and you're competent that's those are a couple of things that are in, really important in this whole thing then you're going to be able to uh, sort the, the opportunities out um, and when it came to my own say just real estate deals um, i'd look at 20 properties for every one i, I would make an offer on uh, you just don't like take everything that comes by you know mm-hmm. you, you think about okay What, what do I think, uh, is the upside of this? So I, I think that we're all, we're always kind of value investors. Um, one of the things to think about, uh, when it, you know, taking, keeping that adage in mind that you make your money when you buy, not when you sell, uh, there's an ability that some people have to what I call see the money, you, quoting, you know, that line from Jerry Maguire or whatever, show me the money, you know, that kind of. Thing. So if you have that ability to kind of see what other people can't see before it becomes obvious to everybody, then you, you can get in when prices are, are great. Mm-hmm. So like I think about like Apple computer. Apples started like in what, late 70s, you, you know, it, when it came out, I didn't know about it, but, uh, by the mid eighties, I was familiar with it because, um, you know, the Macintosh and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't remember what it was going for, but I probably would have thought it was ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm you know, at that point. And then, you know, in the mid 90s, I probably would have thought it was ridiculously expensive. (laughs) And then in the early 2000s, I would have felt the same way. And it just has continued to go and go and go. Now, the reason why I couldn't see uh, what, uh, you know, you know, you know, how it would develop and uh, grow in values, because I just don't know anything about computers. Uh, I don't know uh, enough about uh, what's possible, and, Mm -hmm. and so forth. So that, that was outside of my sphere of competence. But when it comes to, you know, real estate, I think I have a uh, much stronger basis uh, for making good judgments just because of, uh, you know, having seen enough properties kind of, and and a lot of it's just kind of common sense, you know, is this good? Is this vicinity attractive you know is this a place that people want to live uh, mm-hmm. you know will they continue to want to live here for the foreseeable future those kinds of things so you, you know you're making uh judgments about the way the world is going to develop um you can obviously be wrong things can happen mm-hmm. um but yeah in the course of my own uh you know sort of uh, life when it comes to investing there were two or three times where i put it all on the line
0: mm-hmm. yeah Okay. Uh, it
1: worked out. It worked out.
0: Good. <laughs> That's good. It'd be a different conversation, I guess, if it didn't <laughs> <right>. work out. <laughs> right. Right, <laughs> uh, right. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk pastoral ministry. Most of my audience is uh, pastors who are listening in, and certainly there's a broader audience than that. But I started this as uh, basically to encourage pastors. And what, what's the uh, what is the uh, the profile of a pastor who is unwilling to take risks? What what or the negative consequences or the the what's the case study of of the guy that is risk averse
1: yeah i think a risk averse person is going to find himself at the mercy of the kind of the um of the opinions that may prevail at any given time with regard to you know his work okay so um there's a there's a kind of an, a paradox at work here i think people Uh, are pleased uh, with the way things are going when obviously the church is doing well and it's growing. Uh, And one of the ways that that can be facilitated is when a pastor is competent and confident in the right way to, uh, you know, lead a church. doesn't mean that he's got some kind of mindset that says, you know, my way or the highway or anything, that's probably one of the riskiest and the bad way in a bad way, ways to kind of go about things. Mm-hmm. But, um, so there's kind of a virtuous cycle that can kind of develop. And then there's also a vicious cycle that can kind of develop when a guy is, uh, like got his finger to the wind all the time and trying to gauge the opinions of his people and so forth and trying mm-hmm. to, uh, please everyone, Well, what actually ends up developing is uh, people lose confidence and, um, you know, in order for this guy to shore up uh, the opinions of people uh, when it comes to himself, he ends up doing the very things that led to the loss of confidence in the first place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, just always, you know, what do you want? What do you want? That kind of thing. So I think that's a very risky way of operating, but that's often how risk-averse guys go about things. Um,
0: When you say that risk is inevitable. You're taking risks one way or the other. So yeah. the guy that is not willing to address in a situation and instead just goes on to the next church, he's yeah. uh, unwilling to risk talking to this particular person who's the troublemaker yeah. over yeah. Uh, uh, assessing that situation and then acting. But it's a risk yeah. to just continue to go on every two years to a new ministry as well. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Eventually you run out of people that are willing to take a chance on you. To, mm-hmm. you know to take a risk on you <laughs> yeah that's another thing to think about that when a congregation calls you they're they're also taking a risk
0: mm-hmm. so what so okay pushback where somebody's like well chris it's yeah everybody's got to take a risk okay I, I can see to that point but wisdom would tell you that you know risk should be a rare thing that you're stepping into rather than this thing that is a regular part of your life where you're stepping out that and so, what you're advocating for is just recklessness. So what's the difference then between you know between the two? How would you answer back somebody that that came with that?
1: Yeah, I think that you know, risks can be evaluated. And you know, one of the things that I found helpful from the sim necklace to and his uh, his his writing on the subject of risk is he had this thing he called the barbell. And whenever you take a risk, the, there should be something that counter is a counterweight, uh, something that's less risky, more I guess uh, uh, sort of reliable that you can fall back on. It kind of works like a cantilever. So like if you think about, uh, say a deck that extends from a, from a from a house or a building that has no visible means of support, well, there's mm-hmm. support, but it's deep inside the structure. you know th- things are tied in way back inside it. So, um, when I would take the risks that I took, uh, so let me give you an example of one of them. Um, so I bought a a, a 16 unit apartment complex uh, years ago and I had to, I got three mortgages to do that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It was sort of like an all out kind of thing. I I was, I was with my mentor. I don't know if I ever talked about this with you before, but I was with my real estate mentor and he was kind of the, kind of the, the, kind of the grandfather of real estate in central Connecticut. And I said, "Hey, I, I'm I'm ready for another two family." And so we looked at two or three. And he, and he after like the two, second or third one, he he turned to me. And he said, "You need to go bigger."
0: Okay. I said, yeah. "Really?"
1: So how big do you think? Well, how about 16 units? I said, "Really?" <laughs> and he then he took me over to take a look at this place and I thought, "Okay, I think I can make this work. Mm-hmm. I get another mortgage on my house, I get another mortgage with the bank." And then he lent he loaned me from his own personal uh, funds $87,000. Okay. So I had so you know, all of these all this. But I got it at a great price. Uh it was uh back in two thousand and uh one or two so right, right. after the the 9 eleven thing mm-hmm. and uh everybody was f- scared to death and I looked at the particular property and I thought I mean' it's, it's already uh at a discount a huge discount so um I think this is gonna work out and it did and I ended up selling it like four years later and made a lot of money but okay nice. um yeah, I got out before the crash in two thousand. Yeah,
0: good Well done. <laughs>
1: but at the time it just seemed like completely nutsy. Uh, but the the things that were the counterweights were uh the property itself. <clears throat> That's one of the great things about real estate, you know, is you mm-hmm. have an asset uh that uh so long as your community doesn't become Detroit, it's going yeah. to right. still have uh value. And then um, you know, in terms of my personal relationships, my wife uh uh, was uh, really solid through the whole thing, very supportive. I've got a uh, an unusual situation in the sense that my wife comes from a family that it does has done a lot of investing in real estate. So for okay, her, gotcha. this was like normal. This okay. is sort of like yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, was yeah, that's like a big thing for her.
0: That's good. And that's what I was going to ask. So the guy that's on board with this, going to read your book and say, yep, um, I realized that I have been taking risks by not taking risks. And now I'm, I want to take some risks that i'm somewhat in control of rather than being dragged along in life i'm going to take the bull by the horns and let's let's get after it <clears throat> but the wife is there doesn't come from that family background how do you coach or you know how do you lead your wife through those difficult conversations who's thinking wait honey you're you're taking out you're going to take a mortgage out on our paid off home and right, right. What, what are you going to do here uh, right. so how do you do that and assess okay how to coach up and lead your wife through that process
1: yeah, I think a couple of strategies. One is um, you you try to uh, give your wife a security blanket. So I think, you know, one of the things that's helpful is if your wife has uh, direct access to some funds that that are hers to, to hold on to. Okay. Um, you know, I, I know that when it comes to a household... Uh, you know, one of the things I stress is that we're, you know, we have a common life and common wealth and so forth. But you have to be also realistic in the sense that when you're dealing with, with people in your household, um, it's important to um, do the best you can to allay their fears mm-hmm. and not just sort of like make them feel guilty for feeling that way. Yeah. um you know sometimes guys make the mistake of don't you trust me you know and then it put her on a guilt trip and she kind of goes along with him even though she's got some s- pretty serious reservations and some fears and uh, she might really trust you but at the same time this is just brand new territory for her yeah, and right. she's not sure uh how this is all going to work out um so uh in a situation like that if you can allay her fears by saying okay hey babe uh this this little stash of cash over here—it's got your name on it. You're the only signator, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, the, <laughs> yeah, whenever you feel a little nervous, just go look at that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, just stuff, something like that. Uh, and take and take your wife's fears also to heart and say, okay, am I really thinking this thing through? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the kind of the 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 game plan? So if you if you have like, okay, this is if this happens, babe, this is what we're going to do if this happens this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and and she can ask you questions about okay, plan B, plan C, then plan D is we live under a bridge in a box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Are you okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> and then we now when you're young you can start again too, you know, let's say you're in your 20s or 30s. I mean, there's still a lot of life ahead of you. I didn't buy my first property until I was 34. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. All right, now let's talk worst-case scenario. There's a risk here and the guy has lost a shirt and a lot more. And he's thinking, man, you know, he bought, bought in, in 2007. And and, and, uh, so counsel to that guy.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, you need to regroup. Uh, You can heal it just, you know, you know, like you're physically, you physically, you can heal after a real traumatic event, Um, you know, physical harm and, and, you know, economic harm and, sort of emotional and all these things uh need to be addressed and and then it's you know kind of getting back at it uh, and trying to get back into the game as quick as you can I think is, is also a good thing to do um try to learn some lessons uh say I'm not going to do that again <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that particular right. move uh that was that was a that was a bad move that was that was dumb and then you know talk to yourself that way and then, maybe take a few calculated small risks to kind of get your your game going again and your confidence back and take it from there
0: Mm -hmm. yeah because i mean it seems like almost anybody that has wealth and that's done it the right way at some point has a story when they were 38 and they made a real bad move and it went really bad and it almost took them out but then they kept going so for uh for pastors most pastors have a retirement going, some kind of match program. I think our church does too. And I, it's a, it's a match program in my retirement, um, but we're thinking long term. So I'm this year I'll be 40, and I'm thinking already. And both my parents retired in their one retired retired in his he, my dad early 50s, my mom a little bit later. I'm wanting to keep working, and I mean anybody I mean retirement doesn't mean not working. I'm going to be working forever, right. but right. but uh, but formally at some point I'm going to need to be there. Uh, is property the best way for people to have some income retirement income, or I, I know there's a bunch of different ways, but is it the most accessible, uh, well, or it, it, what else could be really accessible?
1: Well, I think it's accessible, but it's also got the benefit of, uh, you not cashing it in. So like, when you think about 401k, you know, and when you start your draw you're, you're losing, you know, equity every time you draw on it, mm-hmm. uh, with regard to say rental property, Um, the asset still is there. Um, And if you're uh, able to keep it in good uh, repair, uh, very likely it'll continue to appreciate even as you're drawing income from it. Mm -hmm. And then there are all sorts of tax um, benefits to owning property that you know about. Um, So I think for that reason, it just makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, In order to to be good at it, though, you need to, a few things. You need to be able to assess property well, uh, take the risk uh, of acquiring it when you when you when you do have an opportunity to do so. Then you need to be able to work with people. Obviously, your tenants. Uh, you got to be a good judge of uh, who's trustworthy and who's not. You know, got to mm-hmm. know how to screen. Uh, and then you also need to know how to work with the physical property itself. Doesn't mean you have to all the work yourself but at least you need to to know what needs to be done and, and when to do it and and have the wherewithal to get it done you know that mm-hmm. kind of stuff
0: yeah that's good stuff well for the sake of time we're going to wrap things up but i want to go ahead and let you just tell us about uh, the publisher we got i got my friends that are pu- working with you to publish the book and i want to give them a shout out but also just tell about your podcast too where people can find out more information about your books i've said it before but uh man of the house i've had a lot of guys in the church read it it's almost like there's a cult like following to it like a like fight club or something like that the movie <laughs> where where people get it and they start talking about mr shoe or their productive property i'm like oh you're talking productive property you've read cr wiley um but tell us about your works and where we can find more information well of course
1: i'm on amazon and stuff like that and i'm looking forward to working with the new guys at new christendom press this will be the first book i've done with them um I've been published in, you know, magazines in different places. Uh, two or three of the books that I'm I'm known for are with Canon Press. Um, and I love those guys. So that's kind of a little bit about all of that. Um, in terms of the, po- the podcast, uh, the, the Theology podcast is now in 60 countries. We've got about 10,000 regular downloads from different platforms and stuff. So it's kind of grown in a way that just kind of astonishes us. And, mm-hmm. uh, but if if that's, that's that's probably the best way to keep up with the, what I'm been doing because I mean I I do have an author uh, website page but I never visited ne- and <laughs> I only update it when I have another book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so it's it's and every once in a while I maybe put up an interview uh, that I'm on. You know, when I'm interviewed, you know, put put it that there. But I haven't done it in years. So anyway, uh, probably the podcast is the best way to stay up to speed on what I'm working on.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks a ton, guys. You've been hearing from C.R. Wiley. Uh, Brother, appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It It was a fun conversation.
0: Good deal.